0: So as we're in um, these three chapters of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and eleven, um, it's somewhat of a break from the theme of the uh, flow of the book, you know and really um, you know what, what, uh, what the Apostle Paul's intent was, And the Holy Spirit's mind in recording these things was to really kind of lay out for us what it means to be saved by grace through faith. What is Christianity? What does it mean? What is the gospel? And he took us through that in chapters one through eight, very systematically building upon our sinful condition and bringing us to perfection and and all of that because of the cross and because of Jesus Christ and he kind of finished, he crescendoed at the end of chapter eight um, by telling us that uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God, that we are um in him we've been we've been chosen by him, we've been elected by him. Uh, that, that that no one can stand against us if God is for us, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he comes to the end of that, and he, and he breaks off from it, and he begins talking about Israel. And, you know, there's a reason for that, because in the mind of the Gentile, the Christian who's reading these things or hearing these things, and they're hearing that God loves you unconditionally. God has chosen you and nothing can separate you from the love of God. And um, you're, you're, you're saved, you're secure. And he's telling us that. The question in the mind of the thinking person is going to be, well, what about Israel then? Did God throw them off? Because if God is saving Gentiles now, Um, And it seems as though he's not dealing with the Jews, then that's somewhat inconsistent. How can you say that nothing can separate me from his love, and yet it seems like they've been separated from his love? How does that work? It doesn't make sense to me. You know, so so he takes the, the break here and he begins discussing Israel because they're the big elephant in the room. And so basically in these three chapters, he answers three questions. Uh, That would arise. The first one is why are the Gentiles now in the forefront and the Jews in the back in chapter 9? And we looked at that last time we were together, two weeks ago. And and the answer to that question that Paul gave essentially is because they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Um, And then he describes what that was. If you just look at it there at the end of chapter 9 in verse 30, he says, What shall we say then? "...that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, the Ten Commandments, the stipulation that if you do this, then you'll be righteous, "...they have not attained unto the law of righteousness." Why? Why did the Gentiles obtain it by faith and the Jews were refused it by works? Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Now, when we get into chapter 11, hopefully this morning, he's going to say, did they stumble that they should fall? And then he's going to say no. In other words, they're stumbled... But they haven't fallen. They've tripped. They were stopped. There's been an arresting of their progress, but they're not done. They've stumbled at the stumbling stone. And then he says, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone. So chapter 9 answers the question of why the Gentiles are now in the forefront and Israel is in the back because they stumbled at the stumbling stone. That is that they did not receive grace through faith that came through Jesus Christ. So chapter 10 then answers the question fully, what is the stumbling stone? They stumbled at the stumbling stone. What is the stumbling stone? And so it's, again, salvation by grace through faith. And there's two different methods. You can be saved by behaving perfectly, obeying perfectly, following perfectly, or you can be saved by... Trusting in what Jesus Christ provided on the cross. And we talked about that, the itemized deduction versus the standard deduction. You know, the itemized righteousness, you know, my do's and don'ts, or the standard, what's been provided by Christ. And so he describes that there in those early verses of chapter 10, giving the contrast between um, these two things. And then he summarizes salvation in verse 13, where we pick up, Uh, salvation by faith, he says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So um, that's kind of the the, the summarization of what the stumbling stone is. Then chapter 11 answers the third question. And the third question is, what is then God's future plan for Israel? If he's not done with them, if he's got something yet for them, what is it? And that's what he's going to answer when we get there. Now, the hinge pin upon which this whole concept uh, swings that he's talking about is this whole concept of election and predestination, and foreordination, this whole thing that God has chosen us and that we've been selected by him. And he's going to kind of carry that theme right through. He started with that in chapter 8, saying that those whom he foreknew, those he did predestinate. And then as we came into chapter 9, it talks about God's sovereign choice, that God chose Israel, that he chose Abraham, he chose Isaac, and that he chooses us. And so this concept of, of, of predestination and election that's absent from any human involvement, and he's going to carry that through because it has to do with Israel. When we get to chapter 11 and God says that he's not done with the Jews, he's going to bring that back around and say that he chose them. And if he chose them, then they're chosen. He doesn't go back on that choosing. So this concept of election is very pivotal in making this whole argument that Paul's making make sense. So, he takes a moment in these last verses of chapter 10, where we read now as we pick up, and he answers a question that we would have, and that is, if salvation is by election, if God's choosing, God's predestination, if, that's, if that stands, then where is the place of evangelism? What's the point? Why would we share our faith? Why would we participate in gospel ministry? Why would we share with people? Because if God's chosen and he's going to save whom he's going to save, then what difference does it make if we preach? And some carry that and believe that even to the point where they say, well, evangelism is wrong. Because if you share the gospel with someone and you persuade them to receive Christ and they weren't chosen, then they're self-deceived into thinking that because they received Christ, they're saved even though God maybe didn't choose them you know, so we shouldn't evangelize. There's no place for Billy Graham or for crusade ministries or uh, a mass evangelism or anything like that because it's irrelevant. God chooses whom he's going to choose and the human decision is not an ingredient at all. Well, that's not what Paul says here. Notice what he says concerning why we evangelize. Notice in verse 13 again, he says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, and, And that call upon the name of the Lord is defined in verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And what he's saying there is that if anybody professes Jesus as Lord motivated by a belief in their heart that Jesus was Lord and that he rose from the dead, and they call out on him and profess him as Lord, then that person will be saved. So we understand that's salvation. However, he goes on to say in verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report, so then faith, that is salvation, comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God." So what Paul says here is that if anyone is ever going to call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved, then there's a few things that are going to lead up to that calling on the name of the Lord. First of all, there's going to be someone who's been sent by God to preach the Gospel of God so that they can hear the Word of God and then they can believe. They can't believe in something that they don't know what they're believing in. And they can't believe in it if they haven't heard it. They can't hear it unless someone says it, and someone can't say it unless that someone has been sent. So who is that someone? That someone is you and I. We all know the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28. That's a very generic calling. Jesus gave that to all of his disciples and followers. He said, go ye therefore, that's a calling, isn't it? And preach the gospel, teaching all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the great mission statement of our lives. It's the mission statement of the church of Jesus Christ, that we've been called to herald and preach this message. So the calling and the sending has already been issued. That's given to you and I. And so what he tells us then is how beautiful are the feet of them that go forth and preach the gospel of peace. And so our calling is to herald this message, this message that God has provided a way for mankind to be saved from their sins through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all, the righteous in place of the unrighteous, so that sins can be forgiven once and for all and forever. And that whosoever will believe this message and take God at his word, and cast their sins upon him, and receive his gift of, of righteousness, that person that calls upon him will be saved. And we're called to give that message out to the Gentiles. And then what the Bible is telling us in, in Romans ten seventeen, the final verse that we read there, is that faith, this saving faith, comes into the heart of a, a believer by hearing and hearing the word of God. And so evangelism absolutely has a very critical and important place in this gospel ministry and in people getting saved, and even in this thing of election and predestination. Um, I think I shared this last time, so forgive me for being redundant. I think it was during the question and answers. But there was uh, one time that that there was a group of people that um, that were criticizing Charles Spurgeon for evangelizing and giving altar calls in his, uh, Sunday morning services. And, and they, you know, they kind of challenged him on, you know, God elects whom he's going to elect and, you know, you're, you're really kind of off base here by giving these altar calls and, and doing this kind of thing. And his response to them was like this. He said, listen, if I, if I came to a, a lake and there was a man that was fishing there in that lake and I asked him, how's the fishing? And he said to me, there are no fish in this lake. And and there is not, there's nothing happening. There's not even a single bite. He said, I probably wouldn't fish. He said, but if I came to that same man and I said, how's the fishing? And he said, well, there's some fish that are biting. There's a little action here and there. He said, I might fish. But he said, if I came to that same man and I said, how's the fishing? And he said, there are 8,000 fish in this lake that will be caught. He said, I'm fishing. And he said, I don't know whom God has chosen, whom God has elected. I don't know who it is that's been foreordained, whose names are written in the book of life and that will ultimately be said. I don't know who they are, but God says they're out there. And he says, therefore, I'm going to fish. And so what that means for you and I in this calling that we have to preach the gospel is that we have this responsibility that's been entrusted to us by God Not to save anybody, because we can't save anybody, but we are called to share this message. And it's in the sharing of the message that faith is stirred up in the heart, which invokes a response and a profession, and then what that does is it reveals that that person was called. God chose them. And we know that they were chosen because God gave them the faith to believe the words that you preached. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Listen. And that, that is the faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. In other words, even the faith that a person has to believe the words that you and I share with them The faith that they've been given, that's from God. And so God has chosen them. They have been elected, but God stirred up the faith. Now, how did God stir up the faith? It was when they heard the message that was preached by you and I. God has chosen that it be through the ear gate, the hearing of the message, That faith is stimulated and activated in the heart unto profession and salvation. Now it's interesting, God could have chosen many different avenues whereby faith was stirred up. He could have chosen that faith is stirred up through the eye gate. Faith comes by seeing, and seeing by the signs of God. God could have chosen that faith come through some other sense, through the taste. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Tasting of his presence. Faith comes by tasting of his goodness. No, 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 no. It doesn't say that. The Bible does say taste and see that the Lord is good. But tasting and seeing that God is good, the seeing of signs and miracles, listen, church, listen, guys, seeing, feeling, those things do not produce faith in a person. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You say, well, that's n- not true. I mean, if, if someone sees a miracle of God, then that's certainly going to produce faith. I mean, isn't that what people say all the time? Like, if I could see God do something, then I would believe. No, it doesn't work like that. Let's prove it. Let's call the children of Israel to the witness stand. And let's ask them if faith comes by seeing the signs of God. And so you just grab 10 people, 20 people, 1,000 people from ancient Israel, the days of Moses. And you call them to the witness stand. And you say, could you tell us the things that you have seen? And they say, oh, we have seen. We have seen. We saw when we were backed up against the Red Sea and the man Moses put his staff into the waters. And man, it was unbelievable. The passageway through the sea, the walls of water on the left hand and the right, dry ground. We passed through the whole thing, safely ensconced on the other side. We watched those waters then drown the armies of the Egyptians. Just a few days later, we watched water flow out of a rock in the desert when we were there, parched in our thirst. A few days later, we saw bread rain down from heaven, and that bread was on the ground every day for 40 years. We saw the earth open its mouth and swallow 24,000 men that rose up against our leader, Moses. We have seen signs like you wouldn't believe. Okay? Question number two. When God told you to go in and take the promised land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give, and then he said to you, go in and take it and possess it. Did you take him at his word? Oh, <laughs> no. Why not? Well, we didn't believe. We went into that land, we sent our spies in, and we were like grasshoppers before them. There were giants in that land. There were armies that were equipped in ways that we couldn't compete with them. But didn't God tell you that he was going to... Yeah, yeah, he told us, but I mean, come on, we got a brain. But didn't you see... What he did to the army of the Egyptians? Didn't you see what he did in providing bread and water from the rock? Didn't you see the way that God, yeah? But didn't that seeing produce faith in you? Apparently, I guess it didn't, did it? Faith doesn't come by seeing. People say, I'll believe if I can see. But the, the human mind has an amazing ability to rationalize the things that it sees away. Faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith doesn't come by signs. It's not the way it is. It doesn't come from senses. It comes from hearing. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was first poured out, it says that the whole multitude of the disciples that were there began to speak with other tongues. And it says in verse 6, it says, Now when this was noised abroad, it says that the multitude came together and they were confounded because they heard every man speak in his own language. Now that was a sign, right? Now if, if there was here represented 18 different nationalities and 18 different languages and dialects, and I was speaking out in an unknown tongue and yet all of you could understand me in the dialect and language that you were born and it was native to you, You would think that was pretty miraculous, wouldn't you? And it says that these were all confounded because they all heard him in his own language. And it says in verse 7, And they were all amazed, and they marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? How then do we hear every man in our own language wherein we were born? And then it lists all the different places that they were from, some 18 different places. And then it says in verse 12, and it says that they were all amazed and they were in doubt, that is, in question, saying one to another, What meaneth this? In other words, they saw a sign. There was some miraculous expression that was going on, something supernatural. And it didn't produce faith, but it did produce wonder, it produced curiosity. And then what happened? It says in verse 14, but Peter standing up with the 11, listen, lifted up his voice and said unto them and then Peter then begins to preach and he preaches a sermon. He brings the scripture into it from the Old Testament book of Joel. He talks about David and things that David testifies of. He brings it down to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and the salvation and the forgiveness of sins that comes in his name and Peter preaches the gospel to a group of people that have been aroused by the things that they saw and sensed. And what was the the product of it? In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, listen carefully. It says, now when they heard this, do you see that? It was the ear gate. It says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So the miracle aroused questionings, which opened the ear, which then the gospel was planted inside, it stirred up faith, and 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ that day. Well, just a couple of weeks after this, Peter and John, Acts chapter 3, they make their way into the temple... And there was a lame man who was begging for alms. And Peter looked at that lame man and he said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so here comes now this sign as this man is miraculously healed in the presence of all of Israel that were there gathered at the temple that morning. And so the lame man that was healed held Peter and John, and listen, verse 11 of chapter 3, it says, all the people ran together in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. doesn't say believing. It says that they were wondering. They want to know, what does this mean? Why did this happen? And so when Peter saw it, he answered the people and he preaches another sermon. He says, you men of Israel, why do you look at us as though we did anything to make this happen? And then he talks about Jesus Christ and he preaches the gospel to them again. And then what does it say at the end of the sermon in Acts chapter 3, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says, how be it, many of them which... Heard the word, believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And here's the amazing thing, is that that does two things in me. And it does two things in you that are extremely powerful, extremely important. Number one is that it empowers us. It empowers us. Because any of us can preach the simple gospel. The gospel is simple. You don't need a degree in theology. You don't need to know your way around the Bible. You, all you need to know is Jesus Christ crucified. <laughs> and, and and you know, I'm not gonna say it again, I've said it four times already. You know this more. We we understand the simplicity of the message of the gospel, right? And we have our testimony, right? So we can say, this is what happened to me. I was this, this is what happened, now I'm this. And so we share testimony, we share the scripture, and that that means every one of us can do it. Every one of us is empowered to share this message. The second thing it does, not only does it empower me, but it also sets me free. It liberates me. Because it takes the pressure off of me into thinking that I have power to save anybody. I don't. It's not up to me to be persuasive. It's not up to me to be convincing. It's it's not up to me to have a certain type of personality or position or prominence. All I have to do is give the message. And the Bible says that God already has it figured out who's going to believe and profess and who's not. And therefore, my preaching and sharing of the message allows me to get to see who it is that God has chosen. Because when I share that simple message and I see faith aroused in somebody, I say, ah, Lord, this is someone that you're saving. This is someone that you're after. Sometimes when you see something stirring in somebody, a neighbor, a coworker, something, they're curious about the things of God or you begin to see the fingerprints of God working in their life, you can begin to pray and think, Lord, maybe is this someone that you're calling, someone that you're choosing, and then you share with them. And I think this passage should encourage you and I to be bold in our sharing. We shouldn't be afraid of offending people. We shouldn't be afraid that people are going to get angry with us or upset with us. They're going to, but it doesn't matter because without a preacher, they can't hear. And without hearing, they can't believe. And without believing, they can't be saved. And so therefore, you and I have a direct part in seeing salvation brought upon a person. We don't save them But we're God's instrument to arouse faith that they might be saved. So may we be those that share. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Give the word of God away. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 18, he says, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, truly they've heard. Their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Now, this is an interesting thing to consider here. You say, okay, If a person never hears the gospel, then wouldn't they be better off in a way? Because how can they be accountable to a gospel and to a God and a salvation that they've never heard about? And wouldn't God therefore be bound to show mercy on someone that never heard the gospel before? Sometimes people will say, what about the guy on some tribal you know, distant land that never has a missionary sent to him and never hears the gospel? How is God going to judge that person? Or should I not preach to someone because I'm doing them a disservice? Because now that they've heard it, they're accountable to it. And I've just sealed their damnation by telling them the truth. Maybe it'd be better for me just to remain silent. I'd probably be saving more people that way. And what Paul is saying here, though, is that that's bad logic. And here's why. And he's quoting from Psalm chapter 19 in verse 18. He says, have they not heard? He says, yes. Now, where did they hear? He says, their sound went into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. A quotation from Psalm 19. You know what it says in Psalm 19? It says that creation testifies the gospel of God. Creation itself the heavens declare, Psalm 19 verse 1 opens up, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, the skies show his handiwork. Day unto day, day folding into day, utters speech and night unto night shows knowledge. And then it says there is no speech or language, meaning there is nobody, whether they speak Russian or Hindi or English, there's nobody who doesn't hear the message that is being preached by creation itself. Creation is testifying that there is a God, and it draws enough of a message out of itself that it holds everyone accountable, no matter if they've heard the gospel or not. Paul says, have they not heard? Yes, they've heard, as it is written, their line has gone out into the ends of the earth. He says, but I say, did not Israel know? Now, Israel would have reason to be more accountable than anybody else. He says, first, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them which are no people and by a foolish nation, I will anger you. That's us, by the way. He's calling us Gentiles fools. Paul, come on, man. (laughs) He was the apostle to the Gentiles. But he says, anyways, but Isaiah is very bold. And he says, I was found by them that sought me not. And I was made manifest to them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a gainsaying people. In other words, no one in the world can claim solvency or, you know, innocence based on the fact that they haven't heard the gospel because creation is enough. But Israel is more accountable than anyone else because they had a lot more than creation. They had Moses, they had the law, they had the prophets. Now they have the Gentiles provoking them to jealousy, you and I, enjoying their God, (laughs) enjoying the relationship with God they were intended to have, provoking them to jealousy. God says, listen, to the Jews, no excuse. He says, I have stretched out my hands all day long. I've sent prophets, I've sent kings, I have done much, and uh, they have not received it. So chapter 11, and we we might get through all this, but we will finish on time, whether we get through it or not. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? So remember, chapter 11 answers the third question. The third question is, what is God's future plan for Israel? Is God through with the Jews? Now, before we go any further into this chapter, let it be said, let it be heard, and let it forever be resolved in your mind that God has not thrown away Israel. And that replacement theology is heresy. Do you guys know what th- replacement theology is? That's right. That the, that the church has taken the place of Israel. And there have been many good theologians throughout the centuries that have believed that theology. That the church is the new Israel. In fact, many of the old study Bibles, when you read the notes... And you read through the Old Testament, and there's curses that are declared. It'll say, curses upon Israel in the heading, in the footing, or in the margin. But when there's blessings that are pronounced, it'll say, blessings upon the church. <laughs> you know, and, and they believe that. They believe that the church replaces Israel. It's an unbiblical position. In the book of Jeremiah, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, uh, I want you to just listen to what God says. He says, this is uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 35. He says, Thus says the Lord, which gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea and the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Now listen. He says, If those ordinances, the sun, the moon, the seas, the tides, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then... The seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever, God says. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they've done, says the Lord. Behold, the days come says the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner, and the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Gareb, and shall compass around to Goth. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and the fields of the brook of Kidron unto the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy unto the Lord. It shall not be plucked up nor thrown down any more forever." God says, I'm not going to cast off Israel even for the things that they've done. In chapter 32, next chapter, verse 36, he says, the Lord says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, whereof you say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, famine, and pestilence. He says, behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I've driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath. And I will bring them again into this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. Now, amazingly, that's what we've watched happen over the past hundred years of world history in our day. And he says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and for their children after them. And listen, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. And then he goes on and and he closes out chapter 32 uh, by just establishing that in in yet greater and deeper terms. So let it be clear that God is not through with Israel. He's got a future plan for them. And that's how Paul begins chapter 11 here in Romans. By just simply saying, has God cast away his people? God forbid. God forbid. And then he gives two proofs for it. Number one is himself. He says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying that there there, there doesn't get anyone more Jewish than me, Paul says. (laughs) Seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin, and I'm saved. And if I'm saved, then God's not through with Israel because I'm part of Israel. I represent them in some small, minute way. So God's not done. Proof number two is that even with Israel of old it was always only a remnant a part of it that truly believed in god and so he says verse 2 god has not cast away his people which he foreknew don't you know what the scripture says of elijah how he made intercession to god against israel saying lord they have killed your prophets and dig down your altars and i am left alone and they seek my life in other words there was a time in elijah's day when israel was so apostate that Elijah literally thought he was the only believer left on the planet. God's people had become the biggest danger to God's people. <laughs> and Elijah thought he was the only one left. But what does what was the answer of God unto him? God said, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, applying to the current day, he says, at this present moment, There is also a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is by works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. In other words, listen, it's one or the other. And if 90% of Israel is still trusting in God by works, then that 90% of Israel isn't saved. But if 10% or even 1% of Israel is trusting in God through Jesus Christ, then God is still working in the Jew, even in this present day. What then? Verse 7. Israel has not obtained that which he seeks for, salvation. But the election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David says, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a repayment unto them, a revenge. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. In other words, it was prophesied by David that these days would come when when Israel would be put on the back burner. I say then, and here is important verse, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, they stumbled at the stumbling stone. They were tripped up by faith. They didn't get that. But is it to their demise? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. In other words, God has used this stumbling season as an occasion to reach the rest of the world. And here's the amazing thing, think about this, is that this is exactly what God said to Abraham, isn't it, when he first called him? Do you remember the first thing God said to Abraham? The first thing. He said that in blessing, I will bless you. In multiplying, I will multiply you. Here it is and in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed in other words this was god's plan of how things would play out from the very beginning and god used their stumbling to reach the rest of the world remember when jesus said there was a man who had a wedding and he invited his you know, neighbors and his friends and his acquaintances to come, and every one of them made an excuse. Remember? They said, well, this one said, I just bought a piece of land. I can't come. I just took a wife. I can't come. And they all made their excuses why they couldn't come to this wedding. And it's, he said that the master of the wedding was offended by it. And he said, okay, fine. Then go out and go beyond the borders of my family and friends and just start inviting strangers. Strangers in the Bible are who? Gentiles. We're the strangers that sojourn among them. He said, fine, if you're not going to come to my wedding, then I'll invite the strangers to the wedding. And the the, the servant came back and said, okay, Lord, they responded, but there's still room. And then the master said, well, just go invite anybody then. Just go to the highways and the byways and invite the bums, anyone who come in. Just get the message out to them. And so this was God's plan from the very beginning. God used the stumbling of the Jews to reach the rest of the nations, and now we provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, then how much more their fullness? If God used their stumbling as a glory point to reach the rest of the world and light was magnified through the fall of the Jew, then how much more will light be magnified in the world when they are restored and that 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 answer is open ended but when they are restored is the end when Christ is revealed so the glory of them is going to be magnified exponentially and we're going to stop right there this morning and we're going to pick it up in verse 13 as he applies it to the gentiles now he says in verse 13 for i speak to you gentiles so how is how does this apply to you and I, because he's going to give us a warning here concerning. Um, listen, he's going to say the same thing that happened to the Jews can happen to you. <laughs> they stumbled, and and they had a whole lot of light. And he says, "You guys, watch your step. <laughs> you know, don't be so, don't be high-minded." But it's an interesting passage. As we can, we finish up chapter eleven. Um, we'll do that next time. But really, it is very interesting. It has very um, Great end times insight uh, as we get down through this passage and especially into verse twenty five. Uh, there, it's very, very, very um, interesting and, and exciting and enlightening. So uh, I know you're look, you're reading ahead and you're going, okay, I can sleep in next Saturday. These don't look. No, don't do that. Like you don't want to miss the, the the truth that's unfolded in in the second half of chapter eleven. So we'll we'll pick up there. Uh, next time. What do we take away this morning from it as we uh, kind of conclude? It is that we've been given this message and see if we can find something to eat. What do we got to lose? If we sit here, we die. If we go in the city and they kill us, we die. But either way, what if they give us something to eat? At least maybe we can prolong this a little bit. So the other guys say, all right, let's go. And so they get up, and as they walk into the city, it says that the Lord sent the noise of a battle. There was no battle. It was just the noise of a battle. And it says that everyone in the city got spooked, and they ran for their lives. And these four lepers walk into the city at dinner time, and they look in a window, and there's fresh food right on the table, still steaming right out of the oven. That's weird. They look in another house. They see the same thing. The city is evacuated, and so they eat. And then they go in the next house and they eat and they just look at this. Then they start emptying the dressers and the wallets and, you know, start taking a spoil. You know, it was the enemies of God. And then the one leper, he looked back at the other four, the other three, and he said, listen, what we're doing right now is not good. Not the stealing part. That was okay. (laughs) He goes, what's not good is that we've got to go back and tell the rest of the Israelites. We've got to bring the message that there are riches to be had, that there's a whole kingdom that's at the, at the taking. There's a whole vastness in the middle of a famine of food to be eaten, to be received. And if we don't go tell them what we have found, the leper said wisely, then a worse thing will come upon us for keeping it to ourselves. And I believe that message is, is very apropos to you and I that have received this grace, this salvation. And we've had our sins forgiven. They've been cast as far as the east is from the west. And, and sometimes like we're hit right in the face with the shame of our past, aren't we? I know I am. Things I've done and said and even things I do, you know, in, in, in the present time, stupid things, you know. And then to realize that all that's been forgiven, it's all been placed upon Christ. And I've been given this ask. God has asked me to share this message with other people. And for me to hold it in while I'm experiencing the richness of His glory, His protection, His provision, His kindness, the future hope, the sense of, of, of understanding why things are happening in the world around me and in my own life personally, even in my emotions, the privilege of being changed and conformed into the image of Christ, we deserve none of it. And for us to hold the message back because we think people won't believe us or because we're too leprous or because it's too unbelievable, it doesn't make sense and they'll make fun, herald the message. How beautiful upon the mountains are them that bring glad tidings of good things that preach the gospel of peace. Just let out the message. Hey, Jesus loves you. He proved it on the cross. Salvation is there for the asking. You'll be amazed to see that God may be calling more people than you think.